0: Well, happy Sabbath, everyone. It's good to see all of you here. And I'm very thankful for this Sabbath especially. I took national boards for neurology two days ago. And it's nice to have that over with, and I don't have to think about it anymore. So, but the Lord blessed, and it's good to be here with you this Sabbath day. And... Before we begin, I'd like to open up with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for the blessings of this Sabbath day. We thank you that we can have another Thanksgiving season to think of all of the things that you've blessed us with. And I pray as I speak today from the book of Romans, it would give us more things to be thankful for that it would remind us of the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. So be with me now as I speak. May your spirit come into our room. Thank you for all you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. About three and a half years ago, some of us had the privilege of studying the first eight chapters of Romans three nights a week for an hour and a half right here in Burden Hall with Peter Gregory. It's hard to believe it's been that long already, but ever since that time, I've never seen the book of Romans quite the same as I did since then. And the book of Romans is powerful. How many of you have studied the book of Romans? So many hands have gone up. This is a very, very powerful book. This book is the theological exposition of the everlasting gospel. Now, why is that important? Because the everlasting gospel is the heart of the first angel's message. So, in order to give that first angel's message with a loud voice, in order for that everlasting gospel to ring loudly... I would like to assert that having a clear understanding of the book of Romans is crucial to having a clear understanding of the first angel's message, the everlasting gospel, and how it connects with the judgment hour. And those are some things we are going to look at today. And you know, now more than ever is a time in earth's history when we need to know the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel has never stopped from the time of Christ, from before the time of Christ, and from the time that Paul wrote this book, and to the time of 1844 when the first angel's message really started to take off, and the judgment hour message. The everlasting gospel still rings loud and clear. And we see it very clearly here in the book of Romans. Now, Just a little bit of background of the book of Romans, it's interesting, Paul wrote this we believe when he was in Corinth on one of his missionary journeys, and Rome by that time had become the leading center in the world, and so there were people from all over the world in the city of Rome. Specifically, there were Christians in Rome. There were Jewish Christians in Rome, there were Gentile Christians in Rome, and there were also some pretty wicked people in the city of Rome. And this epistle was written for all those classes of people, and it is written for us today as well. Now, I like how the Seventh-day Adamus Bible commentary defines the theme of Romans, it's it's an accurate description. It's, the Bible commentary says the theme is the universal sinfulness of man and the universal grace of God in providing a way by which sinners may not only be pardoned, but also restored to perfection and holiness. So Romans encapsulates Everything that you need to know for salvation. All of us are sinners. All of us are in need of the grace of God. And the grace of God offers pardon and it offers power to live a new life. We're going to look at that. Now, just a little bit more background about Romans. <clears throat> when we look back in history, it was Romans 1.17, the verse the just shall live by faith, that Martin Luther heard when he was in none other than the city of Rome. And this was the verse that sparked the Protestant Reformation. The just shall live by faith. Now what's interesting is, the Protestant Reformation is what led to the downfall of spiritual Rome. So the book of Romans, in its clearest understanding, helped Martin Luther, through the power of God, to bring back a biblical understanding of righteousness by faith that brought down spiritual Rome, who had clouded the clear teaching of the righteousness of Christ. So Martin Luther rediscovered the everlasting gospel, And it was the everlasting gospel that gave power and force to the Protestant Reformation. Now, here's the key point, and don't miss it. It's the same everlasting gospel, the same message that the just shall live by faith, that's going to take down spiritual Rome through the power of the three angels' messages at the end of time. So, understanding Romans is crucial because Romans has the key to understanding the everlasting gospel. So that's sort of an overview, that's sort of a preview of Romans, and there's no way we're going to cover everything in Romans that's important. But just some highlights. Paul, of course, starts off with his introduction, and we're going to come back to that and spend some time in the introduction in the first six verses. But Paul makes his first really theological point starting in verse 18 of chapter 1 when he talks about the wrath of God. Now you may ask, what in the world does the wrath of God have to do with the everlasting gospel? Well, here's a few key points to understand. The gospel, by definition, means good news. We know that. But you know from personal experience, that the best news that you can get in life oftentimes follows bad news. So you get some bad news, and then when the good news totally trumps the bad news, then you get really excited. This is powerful. This is amazing. And then you start forgetting the bad news. But under the inspiration of the holy spirit god through paul is giving us the bad news about ourselves first so that we can really understand what the good news of the gospel is and the bad news is is that every single one of us deserves the wrath of god every single one of us and sometimes we think or get into a habit of thinking perhaps we get so used to coming to church or, or Sabbath school or, you know, being around fellow believers. And we develop bad habits and we're not living up to the light that we have. But, but we comfort our consciences by saying, well, I'm around a lot of good people and I go to church. I pay my tithes, so I must be okay. And we forget that we really need the grace of God. Because all of us are sinners. We all deserve the wrath of God. Not one of us deserves anything good from God. None of us. It's only by God's grace and mercy that we can receive anything good. So let's look a little bit at this concept of the wrath of God. What's interesting is... Verses 18 through 32 describe a group of people which probably existed in the city of Rome at that time, but certainly exists in our day and time, who, as we see in verse 20, can clearly see the invisible things of creation so that they are without excuse, but they still deny God as Creator and they come up with all sorts of sophisticated intellectual arguments to say, I don't believe in God. Well, what Paul makes very clear in verse 20 is that no person is without excuse when it comes to the knowledge of God. Everybody has the opportunity to know who God is. And the wrath of God is revealed against those who deny God as creator. Now, here's the interesting point. The first step towards receiving the wrath of God, and when you study Scripture, we know the wrath of God will be poured out in the judgment towards those who reject him. There's two classes of people at the end of time, the righteous and the unrighteous. There's Babylon and the remnant. So there are going to be two classes of people. The very first step down the pathway of receiving the wrath of God is denying God as Creator. So if you have doubts about the creatorship of God, that doubt will lead you down a pathway towards full-fledged disobedience towards God. What kind of disobedience are we talking about? You can see this in verses 25, 26, and 27 where it talks about vile affections. And all sorts of manner of evil. And then there's this list of wickedness, verses 29 through 32. Covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, backbiters, all sorts of things. And these people are going to receive the wrath of God and the natural human reaction for a let's say a jewish christian or even a gentile christian who's reading this letter says yeah paul i know those wicked people here in the city of rome they're awful they are just awful and we believe that you're a creator god and we we go to church and we believe that you are god and we don't do all those wicked things that you just listed off here at the end of romans 1 thank goodness And then he says in chapter 2, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. So, okay, you're not a murderer. You're not a liar. But um, you're someone who um, likes to gossip about your neighbors. So... Yeah, you're not doing the wicked things that your neighbors are doing, but you're inexcusable because you're going to be guilty of the same thing in the judgment. God's no respecter of persons. So, yeah, those people who rejected God as creator, they're off over there, and you're over here doing the same things. You think you're going to escape the judgment? And so, this is an interesting way that that the gospel begins in Romans. And it's bad news. We're like, oh man, yeah... I guess I'm in trouble. And um, this is not good. And we go on down. Verse 5 talks about how God's going to pour out his wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And so... Here we see this concept that God is no respecter of persons. We see that in verse 11 of Romans chapter 2. It doesn't matter if you know all the truth or if you're out there rejecting God. If you are breaking God's law, and doing the things that you know you shouldn't be doing, God is not going to respect what your background is. He's not going to respect, if you were born into a Seventh-day Adventist family, and you've been a vegetarian your entire life, if you're not living according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is no respecter of persons. And so, we go through Romans 1, we go through Romans 2, we get to Romans 3, and in verse 19 it says, And you see this list, verses 10 through 19, those who go against God, there's none who are righteous, no, not one. And then verse 19, it says at the end, that all the world may become guilty before God. And in verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that includes every one of us in this room. And there's no respect of persons with God. All of us have sinned. All of us are guilty before God. And in the judgment, all of us deserve the wrath of God. Case closed. And so we look at that and we say, Man, this is looking pretty bad. But you know, God wrote this passage of Scripture this way for a reason. Because it's only human nature for us to start feeling pretty good about ourselves when we start to do things for the Lord. Hey God, did you see what I did this week? I gave five Bible studies. Hey God, did you see what I did this week? I witnessed to someone at work. Well, that's good. Please do that by the way. I'm not putting that down. And then at the same time we're snapping at our wife, we're losing our temper, we're criticizing people who don't do things the way we do it. And The spirit of Christ is lacking. And God is saying there's no respect of persons. And because of that, God wants us to feel our nothingness. That we are deserving of no good thing in and of ourselves. When we look at ourselves, we see nothing but wickedness and sinfulness. And we know what we're capable of doing. I mean, we can come here to Advent Hope and put on a nice smile and dress well and say happy Sabbath, and then go home and and do all sorts of things that we wouldn't want anyone here to know about do, us doing. And God is saying, you can put this outward front on, but it's what's happening inside that I care most about. And actually. Romans 2, 28 and 29 tell us that. You're not a Jew if you're one outwardly, you're a Jew if you're one inwardly. So, based on all that, once Paul, through the unction of the Holy Spirit, flattens all of us to the ground and says, you guys are all wicked. You're all sinners. You're all deserving of the wrath of God then the question is, well, then what is the good news of the gospel? And if I'm going to be judged for not following God, how can it be that I can be... or how how is it that I can avoid this bad outcome? Now, in Romans, we are reminded... That it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So through all of this, God is saying, he's showing us clearly our wickedness, our sinfulness. And for the Romans who were reading this, the Jews were sort of like hit in the head by a two-by-four. They're thinking, hey, well, we have the oracles of God, so we're a little bit better than these Gentiles who don't know that. And Paul's saying, nope, you're not. You're sinners just like them. You're all guilty before God. So what is the good news? What is the good news of the gospel? And what's interesting, what I find fascinating, is this good news can be found very clearly In the first five verses of Romans chapter 1. Paul makes his main point about the gospel in these first five verses. And he expounds on many of these concepts later in the book of Romans. And so we're going to look at Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 1, especially the first five verses. And we're going to link that, link these verses to key concepts in the rest of the book of Romans. A lot of times when we read these introductions, we just kind of blow right through it and say, oh yeah, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, and we miss the whole point of what the Holy Spirit's trying to say. So let's look carefully carefully at what the Holy Spirit wants us to gain out of these verses. and So notice verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So first of all, Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ. And he's separated unto the gospel of God can you think of another place in Scripture where the gospel of Jesus Christ is linked with servants of Jesus Christ? How about the book of Revelation where the servants of God give the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people? Now, we're going to come back to this but I'm going to point this out now in Romans chapter 6 verse 22 Paul defines what it means to be a servant of God. Romans 6:22 he says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So what does it mean to be a servant of God? To be made free from sin. We're going to come back to that point. So Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, who has been made free from sin is separated under the gospel of God just as God's last day servants of God who will be sealed in their foreheads, the 144,000, will give the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So clearly then, this message is of crucial importance to God's last day people who God's purpose is for us to be servants of God. Now notice in verse 2 he says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What does this mean? It means that the gospel is found in the Old Testament. Don't let anybody tell you that the only relevant part of Scripture is found in the New Testament. Paul is saying, actually, the Gospel, which we see in the Old Testament, talked about the Gospel that I'm going to explain to you now. And if you read through the book of Romans, and if you have a good cross-reference margin, you will see that Paul is quoting left and right from the New Testament to make his theological arguments about what the Gospel is. So the Old Testament is foundational to the gospel. Now, <clears throat> Paul is separated unto the gospel of God, which is the good news. And the question is, what is the good news of the gospel? We've seen the bad news. The bad news is the universal sinfulness of man. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve the wrath of God. But what's the good news? Verse 3, concerning. So the gospel is concerning the next thing he's going to describe. So the good news of the gospel and the very first point of the good news of the gospel is found here in verse 3. What is it? Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? So the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Amen? The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Now, what about Jesus Christ is good news? It says, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So what's the good news of the gospel? It's that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Not of the seed of an unfallen, um, unfallen Adam or the seed of angels. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. That is the good news of the gospel. Now you may say, what's the good news of Jesus being made of the seed of David according to the flesh? Well, <clears throat> there's two points in the life of Christ that we see throughout the gospel. It's Christ as our sacrifice and Christ as our example. And I'm going to show you from Hebrews, which is the same author, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, which shows you why it's good news that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now here's the key point. If Jesus had come like an angel, he could not have died for us. And Adam was not subject to death until he sinned. Jesus could die on the cross for our sins because he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. If he's unfallen with an unfallen, if he's, let me be very clear with you, if he has an unfallen nature, he can't die on the cross because Adam was not subject to death as an unfallen human being. But Jesus, of course, never sinned. That's obviously very clear. And that's also good news. And Romans expounds on the good news of Jesus being made of the seed of David according to the flesh in Romans chapter 8. Now when you think of the word flesh, you think of the man of Romans 7 who wants to do good but can't do it. And in Romans 7 verse 17 or verse 18 he says for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing for to will is present with me but how to perform that which is good I find not and then verse 24 o wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from the body of this death and I've stated this here before but the word wretched is used only one other time in the New Testament it's Revelation 3 to describe Laodicea Romans 7 and Laodicea same thing And Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, the good news of Jesus being made of the seed of David according to the flesh comes out clearly. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So, in and of ourselves, we're going to have a Romans 7 experience and we'll be ready to receive the wrath of God. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus came in the flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, and because of that, he gives us power for the righteousness of Christ to be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, which is Romans 7, but after the Spirit. And that is good news. And that is another definition of the mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the good news of the gospel, Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh so that he could die for our sins, and he gives us power to live an overcoming life here on this earth because he has demonstrated how to do so. Now, moving then on to verse 4, there's more good news. So we start off hearing the bad news saying, wow, we're awful. We're terrible. We deserve the wrath of God. And then we see the good news. Hey, Jesus has made a way of escape. He's died for you, so you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. Jesus paid it for you. And not only that, He came in the flesh so that you can live like Him so that you won't receive the penalty of the sins that you've come from. So that is the good news of the gospel. And then verse 4, He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. So, Jesus is the Son of God, and that's linked with power based on the spirit of holiness. And what Paul is trying to describe here is that power and holiness go together. If you receive the power of God, you will receive his holiness as well. God's not going to give you His power and leave you in an unholy condition. That's not the power of God. God is too powerful for that. And so He was the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, here's a question. What's the good news about the resurrection? Because if Jesus did it all on the cross... Why would the resurrection even matter? I mean, everything's done. I mean, we're glad that he got resurrected because he, he's our savior. So we're thankful that he rose from the dead and we can see him again. But how does this pertain to our salvation? Because the gospel is all about pertaining to salvation. And what does the resurrection mean? Have to do with our salvation because Jesus already died. If the cross is everything, then what does the resurrection matter? Why is that important? Well, let's look at a couple of verses here in Romans. The first one is Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, and this verse says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Okay. Now, what do you say then to someone who says, I thought that Jesus died for our justification. Why does Romans 4 say he was raised for our justification? Does that make any sense? Jesus was raised again for our justification. And this is where I want you to really pay attention. This is very important. It is true that when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for us, through that blood we can be justified. But... This is where our understanding of the sanctuary message helps us to understand what Paul's talking about here. Because in the sanctuary service, when the Lamb was slain, the blood of the Lamb was then taken to the holy place for the daily service. And then finally, on the Day of Atonement, that blood was taken to the most holy place. So could it be that Paul is talking about Jesus performing the high priestly role of making an atonement for our sins on the day of atonement. Let's go to Romans 3.25 to answer that question. Romans chapter 3.25, speaking of Jesus, says, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So here we have this, this big word, propitiation. Now what on earth does propitiation mean? This is where I want you to pay attention. If you forget everything else from today, remember propitiation. I want you to walk out of here with the word propitiation in your mind. Propitiation, okay? Remember that word. <clears throat> This comes from the Greek word hilasterion. And there's only one other place in the New Testament that this word is found. It's found in Hebrews 9 verse 5. And it's used to describe the mercy seat. You can look in Hebrews 9 verse 5 for yourself. And there the word is the mercy seat describing the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Now, what took place at the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement? That's where the sins of God's people were blotted out. So what Paul is trying to convey here is that propitiation, which also means to cover or to blot out, takes place ultimately on the Day of Atonement. So when Jesus was raised again for our justification, he was raised again so that through his blood he could make a propitiation of our sins on the day of atonement. And some of you are looking at me like, you've never heard this before. Let me show you one other verse. This is found in Isaiah 43, verse 25, which links the concept of the blotting out of sin with justification. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 25 says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. And then verse 26. Put me in remembrance, let us plead together, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. So justification and the blotting out of sin is linked here in Isaiah 43. And when... Romans chapter 1 says, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. One of the elements of the good news of the gospel is that when Jesus was raised again, He was raised again for our justification so that He could go to the sanctuary in heaven, minister on our behalf, and ultimately, when the final atonement is made, blot out our sins make a propitiation for our sins over the mercy seat. And that time could be very soon. It's any time from 1844 till before the second coming. And by the way, we talk about 1844 as living in the anti-typical day of atonement. If the atonement was finished at the cross, like many Christians like to say it was, why then would we be living in the anti-typical day of atonement? That makes no sense at all. But biblically, we can prove from the book of Romans, from the book of Hebrews, that the atonement actually will be finished when Jesus makes a propitiation for our sins over the mercy seat. And that will be the final justification of the saints. And it was for that purpose that God was resurrected now, you may be saying, well, hey, I thought I could be justified now. Yes, you can, through faith. Romans 4.25 says, he was raised again for our justification. And then verse chapter 5, verse 1 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can experience justification even now. <clears throat> but the final justification if you will where the legal verdict is declared once and for all takes place at the end of judgment with a blotting out of sin so that's a key point now i'm rapidly running out of time but i'm down to my last couple of points here there's one other key point about jesus being resurrected from the dead that we find here in romans chapter six So what is the good news of Jesus being resurrected from the dead? One is that he goes to heaven to be a propitiation for our sins through his blood that he shed on the cross. Notice Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. "'Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death,' That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So now Paul's going to make a comparison, and he starts off in verses three and four. The comparison is this Christ died, we're buried by with him by baptism into death. So there's Christ's death and our death. Jesus is resurrected. And when we receive new life, it's a newness of life. It's not the old life we used to live. So Jesus is is resurrected. We walk in newness of life. Now notice verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, Jesus died, and there's a death that we must experience. Being crucified with him. Does that sound familiar? How about Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So being crucified with Christ. Now here's a key point. When we're crucified with Christ, in verse 20, how do we live? It says we live by the faith of the Son of God or by the faith of Jesus. Now go to verse 16 of Galatians 2. Galatians 2, Two sixteen says knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of jesus christ so we're justified by the faith of jesus christ and when we're crucified we live by the faith of jesus christ and i see a synonym there it means to be justified or crucified so in order to be justified we must be crucified the old man of self the old man of sin And it's no surprise that Ellen White in Faith and Works, page 100, says God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. God doesn't justify unsurrendered people who keep going on sinning and covering them. That's not justification. Justification takes place with the new birth, when we are crucified with Christ. Now... Just a couple of more points and I'll finish up here. Going back to Romans 6. So verse 9 says, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. So here's, remember the illustration, Christ dies, we die. What happens when Christ is raised from the dead? He doesn't die again. Because death has no more dominion over him. He has been resurrected. So what happens when we walk in newness of life? The old man of sin is dead. We walk in newness of life. Notice what Romans 6 says, continuing in verse 10, speaking of Christ, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he lived unto God. Verse 11, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the power of the gospel. When Jesus was resurrected, death has no more dominion over him. When we walk in newness of life, we are now dead to sin. And he finishes off that point in verse 14 by saying, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law but under grace. So death has no dominion over Christ, sin has no dominion over you. Jesus doesn't die anymore and when you walk in newness of life you don't sin anymore and that's the good news of the gospel because the bad news the wages of sin are death if you sin you receive the wrath of God but God is so powerful he's so merciful he's so loving he sent Jesus who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh condemned sin that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit and sin has no dominion Over us. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin, but he also has made a way that sin has no more dominion over us. And he finishes off this point. In verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? So if you sin, you're a servant of sin. If you don't, if you let Christ come into your heart, you're a servant of righteousness. And then verse 22, which we talked about earlier, says, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And that is the good news of the gospel. Jesus gives us the power to become his servants so that we will bear fruits unto holiness. And if you remember that word holiness in Romans chapter 1, it's connected with power. We receive the power of God. We receive holiness and the end is everlasting life. And there's a lot more we could talk about from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, the last thing I'll say is that when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And then he talks about how the, ju- the righteousness of Christ is revealed as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, which says the, ju- which says the just shall live by his faith. Whose faith is that? That's the faith of Jesus. And remember, Jesus was described as that just man by Pilate's wife. So here you have a just group of people, justified, who live by the faith of Jesus. They're crucified with Christ. They live by the faith of Jesus. They live by faith. And it is that kind of people, who are described in Revelation 14, 12, who God will give all power in heaven and earth to take down spiritual Rome in the last days. When we, through the faith of Christ, surrender ourselves, we allow that old man to be crucified with Christ so that we can no longer serve sin, that sin will no longer have dominion over us, that we will stop being like the Jews of old who look at the wicked people and say, well, at least we don't do all those bad things, so surely God will save us, when we're still backbiting, possibly being in relationships we shouldn't be in, and doing all sorts of things that we know are not what God would have us to be doing, but hey, at least we're not as bad as the wicked. God's going to do away with that at the end and he's going to have a group of people that say sin shall have no dominion. I'm going to live by the faith of Jesus and through the power of Christ he's going to live in me and then God will have a group of people, his servants, who he will seal in his foreheads and then Jesus will come. And that's the gospel in Romans in a nutshell. There's so much more that you're missing but study for yourselves. It's powerful. Let's be that group of people who are servants of God and who Jesus makes a propitiation for at the end of the judgment. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel in Romans. We thank you that Jesus came to this earth, paid a penalty for our sin, and with his blood has gone to heaven to make a propitiation for our sin in the judgment. And we pray that that end would come very soon and that we would be ready for that day. We thank you for all of your blessings and your mercy to us. We are not deserving of any of your goodness, of any of your grace, but we thank you for your unspeakable mercy, your unspeakable love that would save such wicked sinners as us. So be with us now. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.